yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right On Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Sarah Ulmer, and Right On Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Today, we're here with Mamta Chaudhry. She is here to talk about her debut novel, Haunting Paris. Thank you so much for being in Jackson today. It's such a pleasure to be here. I've been to the city before. I've always come as a reader and been to Lemuria. What a thrill to be here as a writer with my first novel. Absolutely. And you can say as many nice things about Jackson as you want, and we'll record them all and just keep playing them over and over. Okay, well. Please feel free. All right, so let's dive in. Talk to me a little bit about this book um, and kind of what your premise is for Haunting Paris for people that are picking it up right now Mm -hmm. and are about to open it up and, and take a good read. Okay, well, the first thing I can tell you is I did not set out to write about Paris. And I certainly did not set out to write about it from the perspective that I did. I'm not French, as you can tell from my (laughs) accent. I'm not Jewish. I'm not a man. I'm not a ghost. Right. But my narrator is all four. And, you know, with writers, what happens is, and it sounds very peculiar, but it's true. And since this is a ghost story, I suppose it fits. You hear a voice in your head and you follow that voice wherever it takes you, and it happened to be Paris. And I'll tell you something, Sarah, one of the things that I'm really interested in with I'm writing about India, about Miami, about wherever the book happens to be set, is in contrasts. So when it was the City of Light, I was very interested in the dark shadows behind mm-hmm. it. Um, It's set at a time of great public celebration, which was the bicentennial in 1989. But it's also a time of great private mourning for Sylvie, who's the main character in the novel. And so all I can tell you about the book, um, it, it is a ghost story, but the ghost is not the scary part. It is a love story, but one of the lovers is dead. It is a war story but there are no battles. So it is, above all, a love letter to Paris, but it's not a funny Valentine like Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. It's sort of complicated and rich and intense the way love tends to be in real life. So you say that you did not intend to write about Paris, but I know you spend time in Paris. A lot of writers write about what they know or what Mm -hmm. is comfortable. So what was your process? How did you kind of pick this story about with a main character that is so far from who you are and a place um, that you didn't grow up in, you weren't Mm -hmm. from? How did that process happen for you? You know, that's interesting. Like talking about processes like catnip for writers. We are so fascinated. Even we can spend hours saying pen or pencil, you know, (laughs) but... I think that um, what's really interesting is wherever you go, you take your obsessions with you. So if you're interested in love and loss and mystery, it doesn't matter really where the book is set. That's what you will zero in on. And in my case, I did spend a lot of time in Paris and I was very attracted to it. And when people say, write what you know, I like um, what Eudora Welty said. 
write what you don't know about what you know. Mm. So I think it's writing is a process of discovery. Even if you're writing a memoir, you learn something about yourself. So it's not that you know yourself, you write it. And um, this was the story that came to me, um, as I said. Um, it was a voice, first of all. I heard a drift of music, Chopin, because I love Chopin's Baccarol, so that's what I heard. And I saw this image of a man sitting and listening very intently when I was along the banks of the Seine in Paris on Ile Saint-Louis, looking at a lighted window like it's a movie. And I thought, who is this man? Why is he listening so intently? Mm. What brings him back here? And it was a ghost who had returned to the woman he loved and the place he called home while he lived. And it was the music that had summoned him back because he had unfinished business. So, well, that, you know, made my hair rise up. So I said, <laughs> okay, well, this is what I'm going to right. follow as a story. So you talk a little bit about where you got the idea from this book, but let's talk a little bit about you. So you're from Calcutta, but ended up in Gainesville, Florida <laughs> That's for university. Okay, so how I always am interested, because, uh-huh. you know, coming from a small town in Mississippi, it always interests me when I hear that people from places I think are much more wondrous and beautiful mm-hmm. that end up in a small town in Mississippi. So how, why Florida? Why Gainesville? How was, what was that experience like going from mm-hmm. a very different culture to mm-hmm. coming to America like that? Right. And I was born and brought up there, you know, so my education was actually in India, mm-hmm. in Calcutta. Um, when I finished college, which was an all-girls college, Loretto College, convent, nuns. Oh, wow. Yes. Yes. Very, very sheltered. <laughs> Welcome to the U.S. Yeah, right. <laughs> So then I come to the States and not just to the States, not like New York City, which Mm. would have been, you know, much less of a culture shock for me than Gainesville, Florida, where um, it was a tiny little uh, university town. And it seemed so exotic to me. I would go out on the streets and go, where are all the people? Because, you know, Calcutta is like thronging with people. But I will say that one thing that helped me immensely was that I did speak English. Mm. So the culture shock um, was not linguistic at all. And I was so lucky. I met people who were so warm to me. And to this day, I am good friends with the girls I met when I first came to graduate school. That's awesome. And then in one of my classes, I met this handsome, blue-eyed bearded, blonde gentleman who carried my books from the library to the journalism school. And I was so grateful I married him. That is, that's a great story. <laughs> Gotta and find a man that carries your books. He's still doing it, you know, all <laughs> these decades. Yeah. I know we walked in and he looked, do you have some water? Can we get her some? <laughs> Just right. looking to take care of you. It's a full-time job to look after a writer. <sighs> we have very high maintenance. <laughs> Um, I, I I won't say that I believe that, but I will take your word for it. Um, 
And so you were at school for journalism. So you've actually spent some time in a radio booth before. Um, you spent your career doing uh, classical music. That's exactly yeah. right. Boy, you have done your homework, I, look, Sarah. I did. The World Wide Web is a wondrous <laughs> thing. And it you, you Google your name, and I find lots of things that I would have, you know, you find lots of different stories about people that you might not have never, mm-hmm. ever known before. Yes, even about yourself. You know, things turn <laughs> up sure. there, and you go, I said that? Um, yeah, so when I was at the University of Florida in Gainesville, I was studying journalism and communications. And I had worked in radio in Calcutta. Mm. And so that was natural for me to go into broadcasting. So I was in the um, university radio station, always, always attracted to classical music. And I was also attracted in writing, in journalism, not to the hard news stories, but to the features. Mm. I interviewed Ken Kesey. And at that time... Um, new journalism was the vogue, you know. So mm-hmm. you have um, um, Gate Elise, you have Tom Wolfe, you have all these writers writing in a very different way mm-hmm. uh, about real uh, events, about real um, strata of society. And here's the kicker all these years later, when I did finally take the plunge and write fiction full time, it's Gate Elise's wife, Nan Talese, who published me. So I feel this was all like this giant... It's a full circle. <laughs> it's a full it's circle. It's a full circle. Right. Th- that's my next question. What made you take the plunge to go from a career in radio doing those things? Mm-hmm. Did you always know you wanted to write or was it something that came to you kind of later in life? No, I always knew, even as a child. And, you know, there's a book by Marilyn Robinson called When I Was a Child, I Read Books. And I think... You could say that about every Mm. one who wants to be a writer. They start out by being a reader. Mm. And so I read lots of books and I knew I wanted to write. Um, Even as a kid, I'd walk around with a notebook and a pencil and people would just run from me because they knew a story was coming. And it was like, (laughs) oh, please. But I always worked around writing. You know, I wrote uh, movie reviews. I wrote feature articles. And then... um, I got a PhD in English from the University of Miami because I'm from India and everybody would come up to me and say, you're from India? Are you a doctor? Mm. (laughs) And, you know, I said, no, I'm a DJ. Oh, you're not a doctor? So after I got my PhD, when people say, are you a doctor? I say, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I am. Thank you for asking. That's right. And I don't say I'm a doctor of literature, but literature... That's not what they ask. They just want to know if you're a doctor. Exactly. (laughs) And I will say that books can cure a lot of Mm. what's wrong with the world. So I'm very proud of my medical degree. We're talking to Mamta Chaudhry about her debut novel, Haunting Paris. Now, in the book, what... What do you want people to take away from it? I mean, do do you want them to focus more on the love story or the mystery or on Paris itself? Did you have anything that you thought, gosh, when somebody finishes this book, mm-hmm. this is what I want them to feel? Yes, actually, I did. I mean, of course, the love story is there and it's very intense because it's about a yearning for somebody that doesn't end with death. It Mm. doesn't end when breath does. It doesn't end when life does. That love continues. So that's one thing that I think people will take away from it without even being told to take it away. You're right, Sarah, that 
Paris is a character in the book. Mm. You know, uh, Paris sort of is living, breathing in it. But the one thing I would want people to know, because there's a very dark part of the story, there's some light and funny parts. I'm much lighter and funnier in real life, actually. In my writing, I go straight for the shadows. <laughs> but, um, and that is about memory, how it works. Um, the main character, Julien, uh, one of the narrators, was a psychiatrist in real life. So he worked with people's memories, with their dreams, with their desires. And I think the important thing about memory is what we repress. Mm. It's what you choose not to know. And in the case of France, one of um, the moments of willed amnesia is in this book and it's brought to light. You don't want to remember because you are complicit in something. And so the book is set in 1989, the bicentennial of that glorious revolution which gave us liberté, égalité, fraternité. But if you go back to 1942, a very dark chapter, that was when France singularly failed to live up to that motto. And so I think one of the things I want people to know is if you repress history and memory, it comes back with a vengeance. Mm. And the Auschwitz uh, Museum says, you know, um, the Holocaust did not begin with the gas chambers. It began with language. Mm. When you dehumanize people, when you call them vermin, you're sort of giving the green light to extermination. So that's where it begins. And then there was, I was in New York recently uh, making a presentation. And there was a an exhibition on by the um, Holocaust Museum in New York. And these words just sort of um, struck me so um, profoundly, and that's what I'd like people to take away from the book. It said, the Holocaust, not long ago, not far away. Mm. I think it's interesting how you tie those two time periods together in the book, something that's really joyous and happy, but then this reminder kind of of where mm -hmm. they came from. In your research for the book, what, what processes did you go through to learn more about how that happened in, in Paris and then the Bicentennial and things like that? Well, I'll tell you, I wish I were the kind of writer, which I suspect John Grisham is <laughs> and others, um, who have a really clear idea of what they're going to write. They go out and do the research, they write an outline, they write the book. Mm. But if there is an inefficient way from get, to get from point A to point B, I will surely find it. <laughs> so I took a lot of detours. Um, it was a very circuitous route, and I learned so much along the way. Mm. And if I put everything I learned into the book, it would be 898 oh, yeah. pages. So it's a very compressed book of 288 pages. Um, but what is left out still informs the book. You know, it, it's sort of like a foundation that you don't see, but it holds mm. the building up. So um, I spent a lot of time learning how to write academically. And then when I turned to fiction, I spent a lot of time unlearning how to write <laughs> academically. So I did research, 
but I didn't want it to feel like research. Right. You know, I wanted it to feel like a story. Yeah. yeah and that, a narrative. Exactly. And this this is their lived life. This is not researched history. Mm. This is what they went through. So as I got to know my characters better, I tried to find out what their life would have been. And as I researched stuff, I found out more about them. So it was a mutually reinforcing project. And I have to tell you, a great gift to me was meeting people who had lived through those dark days mm. and they talked to me about their stories. And then it became even more urgent for me to tell this. It, I feel like you could almost write a story on those stories in a, in a, in a lot of ways. Um, just hearing from, especially being a younger person, mm-hmm. hearing stories from grandparents or family members that went through these times, mm-hmm. um, you don't want to forget those. Exactly. You don't want to. You don't want to lose sight of where we came from and what happened, mm-hmm. so that we can be where we are now. Mm-hmm. Um, as dark and as sad and as awful as those things might have been, mm-hmm. and I find a lot of um, almost like a, a link up to. Being in the Deep South mm-hmm. and and some things that the Deep South and its history has been through with um, civil rights and that movement and mm-hmm. before that with an age of slavery in yes. the U.S. And so I kind of I find that interesting to see um, other countries mm-hmm. have gone through certain mm-hmm. things that are similar. Yes. And you're so perceptive to bring that up because, you know, for instance, Jasmine Ward's Sing Unburied Sing mm-hmm talks about things that have been repressed and they come back as ghosts, you know, that haunt us all. So that's very much it. And also when you're talking about our grandparents' stories, it's a sad fact of life that only when the people who could answer those questions die Mm. do we think to ask them and there's no one left to tell us, you know. Um, And even in the case of India, like one of those seminal moments was when we got independence from the British. Mm. But at the same time, it was like a, you know, bitter poisoned fruit because the country was partitioned into two. And my parents, um, who lived in Punjab, that was then part of India, and it got divided and partitioned into Pakistan and India. So all of a sudden they became foreigners in their own country, Mm. like the Jews became foreigners in France when, you know, not just during the occupation, but France has a long history of anti-Semitism, which I did not know and I learned in this process. And I think that that informs uh, much of the writing is being an outsider allows you to see things in a way more clearly than if you're on the inside. That's a really cool perspective to be able to look at someone else's culture or something that has mm-hmm. happened to someone else mm-hmm. and almost objectively mm-hmm. um, kind of make a story out of that instead mm-hmm. of having been a part of what happened. Mm-hmm. So basically you're saying that you're going to now write a book about the Deep South. Basically, <laughs> <all> yes. <laughs> this, the next one will be about all of the the, mm-hmm. the the ghosts of America and what we have experienced here. Well, I think we have so many fabulous writers writing about that <laughs> that we don't need it. That is probably true. But, but I, you are working on... A second book. I am. I am. And I will only say this. (laughs) 
Then, you knew I was going to ask. What's yes, the scoop? Yes, I'm forestalling you, Sarah, no, because you've okay. done your homework. It's okay. Um, you know, as they say, do you know, are you too young to know the Monty Python show? Oh, girl, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm fully aware, yes. Okay. So, as they say on uh, Monty Python, and now for something completely different. <laughs> so, that's like what it's it. going to be. Okay? I like it. Okay, well, I guess we will have to look out for that. So... We talked a little bit about your writing process, but I, I, I like getting to know our authors. I like to know where this all comes from. So you said you read as a child. What did you read? What were your favorite books? Oh, I read everything <laughs> I could get my hands on. And I was sort of, at that time, very indiscriminate. And, you know, growing up in India, and I was born after independence, so I was born in a free India. Right. But... Even to this date, as you can tell from lingering traces in my accent, the British influence is very strong. Right. So I had these two parallel uh, influences going on in my life. One was the books I read were all English children's books like Enid Blyton and the Naughty Books. For heaven's sakes, I had never seen, you know, badgers and, and eaten scones. But <laughs> Do you have badgers in India? <laughs> well, we might, but I was a city girl, so, right. you know. And then on the other hand, I had uh, this rich treasury of Indian right. stories with uh, maharajas and jewels and cobras. So there was this mishmash in mm. my head. And of course, now I am very much uh, more discriminating in what I read, only because I have much less time left mm. to me. There's always too many books, too little time. But... Um, I think that that influence of taking in everything, my God, Jane Austen, mm. and to this day, I am mad about Shakespeare. I mean, there's uh, there's an American professor in this book who's a Shakespeare scholar, and uh, uh, the sonnets are in there. So, mm. you know, what you love comes out. And going back to something you said earlier about writing stories from the outside, you know, sometimes people say, oh, you're appropriating other people's stories. And I said, no, I'm not. They tell their own stories. Mm. I tell the story the way I see it. Right. I mean, E.M. Forster wrote one of the most compelling novels about India called A Passage to India. Mm. And they may have been you know, things you can take exception to, but it was a brilliant novel from a different perspective. Right. And um, Rebecca Mackay, to use a recent um, example, wrote The Great Believers about the AIDS crisis under mm -hmm. Reagan in Chicago. So the important thing is not which story you tell, but do you do justice to right. it? You know, I, I think that's an interesting thing to look at is the perspective. You've mentioned Jasmine Ward before, which is one of our beloved Mississippi writers. And when I read her book, The Men We Reaped, mm -hmm. I grew up in Mississippi and mm -hmm. I had a very different experience mm -hmm. here than she did. And it was very... Um, eye-opening to me to read the stories of these young men in South Mississippi and kind of what they experienced in the 80s and 90s and how they were treated. Something that, I'll be honest, I 
not that I couldn't have imagined it could happen, but was not aware of and mm-hmm. very blind to. Granted, I was not alive in the 80s, but... Mm-hmm. You know, oh, dear. <laughs> well, that's aged <laughs> me immensely just hearing that. But I, I do think there's something to be said about reading books from other people's perspectives, mm-hmm. even if it's about a time and a place that you might have had um, a part in, mm-hmm. to see how they saw it without... Um, a comment section and a like button until you get to the end of the story. Mm-hmm. I feel like oftentimes we don't take into account that the world is different from everybody's perspective. And it's important, I think, to understand as many of those as we can in order to better relate with each other. Well, what a perfect reader you are. Yes. Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> I, I, I wish I, like you said, too many books, too little time. I mm-hmm. wish I had time to read more. That's an absolute truth. Um, even with the book festival, you, you kind of, you would assume that we just have a little room where we sit in and read. Actually, we should talk about having a room where we just sit in all day at the book festival office. Um, okay, so you talk about reading. Mm-hmm. What are you reading right now? Well, I have a lot of books that, uh, have you seen this New Yorker cartoon? It's um, two bedside tables on either side of the bed, his and hers. And there's this huge tower of unread books <laughs> and I feel they're going to topple over and conk me on the head sometime because it's like the revenge of these books that you mean to read and don't. But I just discovered this wonderful woman and you know when people talk about new books, even if a, a book is 30 years old and you've just found it, it's a new book to you. Mm. And I can't believe I never knew her writing before. Let me see if it, I can remember the name. I think it's a manual for cleaning women by Lucia Berlin. Okay. It's a book of short stories. And, you know, my passion is novels. I write them, Mm -hmm. I read them. And when I read short stories, I'll read one, put it aside, come back, read another. This book, I read all the short (laughs) stories straight through. She's she's an amazing talent. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's like me as a writer. I wish I'd been discovered earlier, but I'm glad I'm discovered now. And I wish I'd read this book earlier, but I'm glad I've read it now. It's always good to <laughs> to get around to the things that you might have wished you had seen when you were younger. Correct. Well, I know we're thrilled about your debut novel, Haunting Paris. And if you've not picked up a copy, you can at your local bookstore. If you're in Jackson, that's Lemuria. Um, and we want to thank you so much for being here today for the Mississippi Book Festival podcast. We are excited to add you to our incredible repertoire of authors that have come through Jackson and have sat down with us and are excited. Excited to see you at the book festival. Thank you, also Sarah. In August, I know it will be hot and muggy. We'll have so many water bottles. Yes, get but you the, one of those personal fans. Well, you know what? <laughs> There's nowhere else I'd rather be sweating than here. Well, so that is, hey, that's exactly what we want to hear. <laughs> so we want to thank Mamta Chaudhry for joining us today. Be sure to visit your local bookstore to purchase her work and keep up with her uh, online. Do you have a website that you can? I do. It's mamtachaudry.com. And it's like going to Paris without the expense of a ticket because there are (laughs) pictures from Paris, there's music from Paris. There are other books about Paris. So mamtachaudry.com. And at my advanced age, I've taken the plunge into social media. Oh, look at you. Hey, I know. Tweeting late in life. But (laughs) find me, mamtachaudry1, at Twitter. Thank you, Sarah. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party.